Heather Hendershot. I think everyone in this room knows that. Um, today we are having our annual alumni panel. Uh, and I'm just going to go ahead and read the introductions for each speaker. You guys can go ahead and sit down. Um, so I will read the introductions for each person so you have a little sense of their background. You didn't read the long email you got today about them. And then they're each going to talk for 10 minutes or so about their CMS experience, their trajectory since then, really anything they feel like talking about to get things uh, jump-started. And then we'll just open up to discussion and Q&A. So first we have Matt Weiss. Yes. Okay, from uh, class of 2004. Um, a game designer and educator whose work spans industry and academia. He's the CEO of Empathy Box, a company that specializes in narrative design for games um, and across media. He was the narrative designer at Harmonix Music Systems on Fantasia Music Evolved, the game design director of the Gambit Game Lab at MIT, which was the earlier incarnation of what is now Game Lab, a consultant for Warner Brothers, Microsoft, PBS, the National Ballet of Spain, and others on storytelling and game design. And his work both creatively and critically focuses on transmedia adaptation with an emphasis on the challenges of adapting cinema into video games. Uh, was some of you at his workshop this afternoon? No? Okay, just checking it. Because <laughs> I know exactly what this means now, because yes. my office is right there and the door was open. And I was like, oh, very interesting. <laughs> um, Matt has given lectures and workshops on film-to-game adaptation all over the world, and has published work on how franchises like Alien, James Bond, and horror cinema in general are adapted into games. Then we have Ainsley Sutherland, class of 2015 a media technologist and researcher working in immersive computing and human-computer interaction design. Her project, VoxHop, a tool for voice collaboration and virtual reality, is a 2017 i360 Challenge winner funded by the Knight Foundation and Google News Lab. She was a 2016 fellow at the BuzzFeed Open Lab, as well as a researcher in the Imagination Computation Expression Lab at MIT. She has co-founded Mediate, an MIT design-expat company that enables collaboration in an analysis of 3D environments. Um, in addition to her MS from MIT, she has a BA from the University of Chicago in economics. And finally, we have Beza Boyajachu. Should I help? Yes, I'm sorry. Boyajolo. Boyajolo, yes. Thank you, sorry about that. Uh, from the class of 2017. An award-winning documentary filmmaker and artist, her work has been presented at MoMA Doc Fortnight, IDFA Doc Lab, Morelia International Film Festival. Um, uh, is it RIDM or Reading? Uh, I think both work. We'll go with that. RIDM, Anthology Film Archives, amongst other venues and festivals. She's received grants and fellowships from the Lett Foundation, MIT Council for the Arts, the Flaherty Seminar, Salt Research and Greenhouse Seminar. She was an artist in residence at Union Docs in 2012 where she co-directed Tonitas, a documentary portrait of the last Puerto Rican social club in Williamsburg. She's currently producing a cross-platform documentary about Turkey's gender-bending pop legend, Zeki Moran. The project is comprised of a feature film by Prince from Outer Space, Zeki Moran, a hotline and web experience, which was uh, the work that she did uh, for her thesis project here. Um, and currently she works as a producer at the MIT Open Documentary Lab. Um, she's the only person whose thesis work I specifically mentioned, but I'm sure the others would be open to discussing what they did um, as their thesis here, if, should you choose to discuss that with them. 
So I think we meant we missed some. Oh my god! I'm so sorry. <laughs> I was, I was sat in the wrong order. Thank you so much. I was like, wow! I know order. what I do so much that so I didn't even that I didn't even hear. And Karen needs no introduction. The great Karen Schreier. Yes. Yes. Class of 2005. Thank you so much, Angel. An educator, innovator, and creative researcher, always sorry. looking for collaborators and new connections. She's an associate professor at Marist College and director of the Games and Emerging Media Program. Is that a grad program or undergrad or both? Undergrad, it's all undergrad. Got it. She also runs the Play Innovation Lab where she researches and creates games that support learning, ethical reflection, and compassion. Her recent book, Knowledge Games, was published last year by Johns Hopkins University Press. Congratulations. And was covered by Forbes, New Scientist, Times Higher Education, and Sirius XM. Dr. Schreier also edits the book series, Learning, Education, and Games, which is published by ETC Press uh, out of Carnegie Mellon. And she's the president of the Learning, Education, and Games group of the IGDA International Game Developers Association. She holds a doctorate from Columbia University, a master's from MIT, and a bachelor's from Commerce College. Okay, now we're ready to go. Thank you all for coming. And I think we can just move from uh, my right to my left. Okay, so just start yes. this way? Okay. Do that way. So it's like... Um, I'm just telling my experience of, of having been... Yes. Yeah, okay. This, and if you're wrong, we'll interrupt you. Yeah, please, please, please let me know. Let, let me know. Uh, I'll, yeah, tell, tell, me, tell me if I've got Something it Something doesn't wrong. ring true. Yeah, tell me if I've got it wrong. You're like, I don't know if I believe that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, okay. So for me, um, I... Uh, so I, some ways I describe myself as, as, as kind of like a, a, a 90s film nerd. Like, this is where I come from, even though I work in games. Uh, I was part of that generation that uh, I guess like idolized like in indie filmmakers in the 90s. So like I was one of these uh, you know possibly annoying uh, people who grew up wanting to be like Quentin Tarantino or Kevin Smith or this kind of like kind of like character. Uh, so uh, I actually ended up going to uh, film school at the University of Wisconsin Milwaukee um, as an undergraduate, uh, where I took um, essentially film courses because that's what I thought I wanted to do. And uh, I uh, did, uh, we did all sorts of uh, avant-garde cinema there. Uh, there were some people who were kind of weeded out who kind of wanted to be George Lucas, uh, but they were very commercially minded. Uh, and uh, instead they kind of exposed us. They gave us kind of an intervention of like avant-garde cinema. Like so people who are familiar with uh, avant-garde cinema, people like Stan Brakhage, George Kuchar. Uh, this, uh, even though I liked commercial cinema, this was kind of really awesome to me and I was very into this. So, um, uh, but uh, for whatever reason, I, uh, I think at the time I was just kind of like nerdy and shy. I was like, oh, films require you to work with people. And uh, you know, I ended up kind of drifting away from the film program. And at the time there were actually some uh, new professors in the communications department at UWM who were doing games. Uh, or no, actually no, that's not quite true. They were interested in their students doing games. Like if you would come to them and say like, hey, I'm interested in like interactive media, uh, games are a thing. This is the late 90s, by the way. This is like 90, 98. And um, that got to the point where uh, they basically just uh, let me do a bunch of independent studies with them. I made my own degree. And one of them, uh, uh, one um, at the time new professor, she's still there, uh, named Tasha Oren, uh, had just uh, come from having been part of uh, CMS. And uh, she uh, told me about CMS. She was like, you know, after you graduate, you should totally apply for this program. And uh, so she was kind of, in some ways, like preparing me to think about like what kind of education uh, I would get from CMS. So uh, I applied to a bunch of places uh, and I got into a bunch of them, but CMS was the one I ended up uh, going to. 
and um, it was pretty uh, incredible. So uh, at the time, uh, Henry Jenkins was the head of the program, and uh, he had this whole emphasis, not that it, I'm, sh I'm sure it still is this way to some degree, but I remember he was particularly famous for having an emphasis on popular culture and fan culture and all this kind of stuff. So uh, that was very exciting to me, and I remember uh, feeling really galvanized by that. And at the time, that was actually when the Education Arcade uh, group was um, very new. <coughs> so uh, because I was, I think at the time, one of the few people who was interested in games, I actually uh, did, uh, I was um, uh, an intern in the Education Arcade. And I worked on my first game project here, which was uh, the uh, simulation of Colonial Williamsburg. Uh, it was called Revolution. So. Um, that was a project that I was, uh, I wasn't, obviously I wasn't the only person on it, but it was, it was one of the things that I was tasked with trying to figure out. Um, that was my first uh, project, really doing game design, and um, it was pretty fun and pretty interesting. And then uh, when I graduated, um, I ended up, uh, it's kind of funny, I don't know if, well, I guess I should say it. I actually... Um, uh, met my uh, future wife at the time, Claire Fernandez, who's also a graduate of the uh, program. And um, she went uh, to, uh, did her PhD at Georgia Tech, and I actually also applied for the same PhD program at Georgia Tech, and she got in, and I didn't. So, um, but because we were together, I just kind of showed up anyway. And so uh, I was kind of there as like a hanger on. Um, and, uh, but I ended up getting a job in the games industry in Atlanta. And uh, that was my very first game job. And that uh, was, at the time, the world of mobile games. So mobile games today are really different than they were in 2005. Uh, mobile games, like mobile phones can do kind of anything that kind of like big expensive computers and consoles can do today. At the time, they could not. So it was like a really weird experiment in doing like really kind of micro um, game design kind of stuff that was really hard to do. Uh, but that was interesting, and uh, so I ended up doing that. And then around the time that um, that was uh, around the time that she was ABD, uh, that's when the Gamma Game Lab um, was opening up here, and um, that was a you know really a huge uh, lab that was focused on games, and um, you know getting teams of student interns to make games using MIT research. So uh, I essentially got hired uh, to come back to CMS to work. On, as the game design director uh, of this lab. So basically, that's what I did for five years. So I came back to Boston. Uh, Clara also came back to Boston with me, and uh, that's uh, where we were. So we were uh, doing uh, innovative work, also trying to figure out what the mission of the lab uh, could be. And that's kind of when I got to see CMS kind of like from the inside, from like the perspective of a researcher, not just a student. And um, uh, actually, when that lab was uh, kind of in its last year, uh, I applied to the company Harmonix, um, which is local. Uh, they made a Guitar Hero, Rock Band, um, and uh, one of the things that, um, uh, one of the reasons why I ended up getting a job there, I got a job as what we call a narrative designer, because the work that I focused on uh, from Revolution as a student onward uh, to when I came back to MIT is all narrative focused. Because I come from film and the humanities, I was always interested in storytelling in games. So when I was here as the game design director, uh, I ended up doing uh, this game, The Snowfield, which is, a, is about uh, freezing to death in World War I. And uh, it's as, as, as optimistic and, as you can imagine. It's pretty, pretty horrible, but that's the point, right? Because it's, it's war. So, um, uh, but at the time, too, I took advantage of the fact that we were here in Boston to do a podcast series. 
uh, based on one of my favorite companies, which was Looking Glass Studios, that had kind of created a lot of the tropes of storytelling in games in the 90s. And they disbanded at the end of the 90s, but I was like, we're here, we're in Boston, we should hire some of them. So like, for example, Sarah Varelli, uh, who still you know works here, uh, she actually was a hire that came from sort of like looking for uh, these people. Um, anyway, so uh, this is part of the reason uh, why I ended up getting this job at this game company and I got the job as a narrative designer. I was working with Disney on the new Fantasia franchise. Uh, the idea was that they made two Fantasia films and they wanted the third one to be a game. So it was a game, but it was meant to be a sequel to the second film, Fantasia 2000, which I'm not sure if people remember that, but there was a second Fantasia film. Uh, it came out in 2000, called Fantasia 2000. And uh, so uh, that's what I worked on. And um, uh, that was a year, and then uh, after that, uh, went to New York, because uh, um, Clara ended up getting a job as a full-time uh, faculty at the NYU uh, Game Center, which is the kind of, um, it's in the Tisch School at NYU, so it's like the game equivalent of their film school. So like the school that produced like uh, Martin Scorsese and um, Spike Lee, uh, this is like the games version of that. So um, she teaches full-time there. I teach some classes there. I teach a class in immersive narrative, a class in interactive narrative. Um, but uh, uh, in that time, I've been doing freelance. So uh, I did work for, like um, was mentioned before, the National Ballet of Spain, doing a, a narrative game for them about like how do you teach, how do you get young kids excited about uh, flamenco dancing and Spanish ballet. Um, I worked for Warner Brothers on a prequel to this Johnny Depp film that got terrible reviews. Uh, uh, the film got terrible reviews, the game got good reviews. Uh, so uh, if anybody's ever seen this film, it's called Transcendence. It's basically Johnny Depp becomes the internet. Sounds good to me. <laughs> so uh, you can check it out. Uh, but it was cool. We got like, you know, uh, our own scripts that were like watermarked with our names and everything. We'd get in trouble if we showed them to anybody. It was like super exciting. And, uh, so, uh, so uh, you know, so that's what I've done since. And um, what we've done since we've been in New York is uh, take advantage of the kind of like, um, sort of like mediascape there to, you know, the fact that they have like, uh, uh, you know, Boston is a little bit more of a tech town. Um, and of course in New York, they have like the major film studios there, the television companies and everything. So uh, we've been active in um, that community in New York and uh, we took this opportunity to kind of start our own game studio. So uh, after doing a bunch of kind of work for other people, work for hire, again, for like, you know, for uh, Warner Brothers and uh, National Ballet of Spain and a few other people who I can't actually mention, um, you know, starting our own studio, doing our own uh, narrative project to try to push the whole enterprise of, you know, art in the commercial context of uh, story-based games uh, forward. So, um, yeah, that's kind of in a nutshell for me. <laughs> okay. Um, I'll just do the same thing now. Um, <laughs> Go. <laughs> so uh, I graduated from CMS in 2015, I think. Is that right? That's correct. <laughs> it feels like a long time ago, but also not. Um, before I came to CMS, I was working uh, in Chicago with a professor from undergrad um, designing something called alternate reality games, um, which are kind of like this phenomenon that got really popular in like the late 2000s, mid 2000s, where <coughs> I think you basically go on these scaven narrative scavenger hunts. There was a really famous one that was in conjunction with the, a the I think the AI movie. It was like they're put on by these like movie studios kind of as promotional like 
phenomena. But then the players kind of come together and like solve and create their own story. And a lot of it has to do with meeting people in real life or, or collaborating with people that you've never met before. And so we were kind of taking this genre of gaming that kind of is like sort of through creating like fake Facebook walls and creating fake people on Facebook and fake Twitter profiles, as well as like planting characters and scheduling like performances around the city um, to try to figure out if there was a way to like both make these games more accessible and shorter and kind of like possible. I think one of the biggest challenges of those types of games is that you put all this labor and time into something that then happens once. And it's not even like a ballet where you can go a couple, at least for a few months. It's basically you either get on board and you hang out with it for a while and, and then it's over or you totally missed it. Um, so we kind of played around with that medium for a while, which was also really cool because you had the phenomenon of trying to design uh, experiences that you couldn't guarantee that everybody was going to have the same content. So a lot of people would only participate in like the online component. Some people would just pass one or two things in person as they kind of explored the neighborhoods where you actually had physical installations and things like that. Um, so that's kind of where I began sort of thinking about um, what it could be like to design experiences and games and things like that that don't have just one space that they belong to. They're not just wholly on your phone, they're not wholly on your computer, and they're not wholly like tagged in another person's space. Um, and so it was kind of with that experience that I then came to the CMS program um, where I worked in Professor Fox Farrell's lab, the Imagination, Computation, and Expression lab. Um, and that was a really great experience for me because Fox sort of runs his, his lab almost like a um, like an artist's atelier. <laughs> you can kind of bring your own projects to the lab, you contribute to the lab projects, and it's a very like productive space to kind of actually begin making tools that can explore some of your theoretical ideas, um, as well as being able to contribute uh, both technically and conceptually to Fox's work, which is like pretty amazing. Um, and for me, it was a new domain of knowledge to start thinking about um, how the role of cognitive science in interaction design and in narrative design, um, which was, kind of a new field for me at the time and something that has pretty has been pretty important in shaping my work going forward. Um, I ended up writing my thesis at MIT with Fox as my advisor, um, as well as T.L. Taylor, um, on how to design interactions in immersive environments in a way that um, is not just about, oh my god, you're inside of it. like and just kind of being overwhelmed by the spectacle of these technologies and actually think about what are the unique affordances of something that's all the way around your head and kind of has these other technical apparatus like pieces and elements that we haven't really encountered all together at the same time in a major way before or in an accessible way before. Um, and so some of the work that I did with Fox was really helpful to start thinking of a framework for how we can just design experiences that try to port our past knowledge, like how to, how to film a movie or how to make a game, into a medium that has different affordances, but actually think about um, how can we use what this medium does in conjunction with the human body to produce new techniques and new interactions. And so one of the approaches that I took to that project was thinking through this concept of what it means to empathize with something else and suggesting that instead of just using the fact that you're in someone else's position, which actually doesn't necessarily have a lot to do with empathy. For example, like if I'm 
empathizing with you. I'm looking at your face and I'm, you're smiling and I feel good. I'm smiling and mirroring your like behavior. But if you are looking at a wall or at something that's scaring you and then I'm suddenly where you are, I don't have your face to go off of. I just have my own experiences. So this is very actually very inwardly focused thing where you're really kind of um, have only your own experiences to draw on at that point. There's no one else's facial expressions necessarily to guide you. And so thinking through, okay, so what are the kinds of ways that we have to change the way that you interact with the world to kind of model or simulate how somebody else might experience it. And so that was some of the work that I got to do for my thesis research here at MIT. And then after that, by the way, while I was at MIT, I had like no idea what I wanted to do. I was trying out all kinds of different stuff. I worked on a bunch of interactive film projects. I worked at something called the GovLab at NYU for a summer and just wanted to do like policy research on technology. Um, just did it, like tried to get involved in a whole lot of stuff and felt very scattered until I really gelled around my thesis at the end. And it turned out that like, yes, I can tell a pretty coherent story about how I came to be where I am. But the truth is that while I was here, I was experimenting with a lot of different stuff, trying lots of different ideas and really not that focused until the, <laughs> until the uh, my second year uh, part of it. <laughs> um, which was cool. I mean, it was interesting that it was a program that was really welcoming to all that type of experimentation. It was like, you can write your thesis and you will have a specialization and you will work with a PI who has his or her specialization. Um, but you can also kind of get involved with a lot of different groups and programs and different labs around you. Just because you're in one lab doesn't mean that you can't participate in another. So like when I was in the ICE lab, I also did a lot of workshops and participated in a lot of ODL meetings. Um, as well as the Civic Media Lab group. Um, and so it was really nice time for me because of the breadth of communities that you get to connect with. And those are people that I still am like pretty close with even though I never was in their program or never necessarily studied the same thing as them. Um, and that are good professional connections as well. Um, that's my CMS uh, blurb. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> um, and then after CMS, I... Um, went to California. Oh, I also met my current husband in CMS. <laughs> uh, do you have a question? No. Oh, okay. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, yeah, it's a great place to get married. No, just kidding. Um, yeah, I got my, I'm not gonna even make the joke. It's not worth it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so I went to California, but that was um, for a year to work at BuzzFeed, which was really, really cool. They had a two-year uh, program there, um, or a program that was running for two years called the Open Lab, which was kind of this incubator for art and technology and journalism. Um, and it was a chance to kind of basically pitch an idea and a project to them and to kind of be in residence in the newsroom that they had in San Francisco and kind of work on tools for reporters that had to do with VR and 360 video. Um, and so it was there that I kind of started working, not just with actually shooting the 360 video, which I did help them kind of put together this kit and start working on um, techniques for that and how to get it out in the field um, and distribute it. Uh, but then started getting really interested in this question of like interactive VR, which is what I kind of worked on at MIT, um, and being like, why is it so hard to kind of bring this into the newsroom? Why do we have to pitch projects that have like a six month like pipeline or year long pipeline or longer, which is really hard, especially when the technologies that are kind of making this possible are changing and becoming obsolete like every month. So 
um, you know, had the opportunity to kind of work with reporters to see kind of what some of the barriers to creating interactive work was. And partially it's nobody really knows what's the right type of content for it. And one of the reasons that they have that problem is because there's not very many examples and it's not very easy for people who are busy and writing like investigative reporting like pieces to kind of take a step back and try to wrap their heads around an entirely new medium. Um, and so a project that I started there was this tool that let you use something called WebVR um, to annotate a 3D environment with your voice while other people were present in the same like space as you. Um, and the inspiration for that kind of came from seeing how frequently um, the reporters would use Google Docs real-time collaboration. It was important that it was asynchronous too because they needed to be able to leave their feedback in kind of um, a persistent environment so that it wasn't just something that disappeared and they had to start over and it was just this constant prototyping. Um, and so that's kind of what made me start building this tool. And then when the fellowship ended, um, I returned to uh, Boston and my future husband at the time, who <laughs> was very happy that I came back from California, um, and started working on this project um, and thinking about how it could be viable as a company in order to kind of move forward with it, um, and began working with some collaborators here at MIT. Um, and we applied for some funding here through the DesignX program, which is new out of the architectural build, uh, building. It came not from the building, but from the people. Um, out of the architectural department, uh, as well as a program here at MIT called Sandbox, which because one of my co-founders is a current PhD student, we are eligible for, and I would heavily encourage prospective or current students to investigate it because it's a great opportunity to get funding for your projects. Um, and that's kind of what we've been working on now. Then the project was also, um, I pitched it to the J360 fund as a as a way to support continuing to build the front end for reporters and for journalists. And that was successful. And so now I'm able to actually travel and go to newsrooms and kind of embed for a little bit with reporters on a periodic basis to kind of show them the development of the tool, get their feedback, watch them use it, and kind of try to create it, move it forward in a way that has a lot of um, feedback while I'm doing it. I'm really worried I'm going to go over 10 minutes. so. Am I good? Should I stop? You can bring it home. I'll bring it home. <laughs> okay. So, and then, so basically, you know, I ended up spending like probably the last three years really working on like pretty technical projects, but a lot of the ways that I've approached those have been with um, kind of methodologies, both for design as well as methodologies for conceptualizing my practice and my work that I really learned and strengthened through the CMS program, these ideas of really um, not just reading a blog post about agile and then making a company around it but actually kind of embedding with the people that you want to build something for listening to them a mixture of like both media technology anthropology um and doing like these like kind of casual ethnographies of people to really try to understand how they can integrate technology into their world um and it's also like this speculative imaginative imaginative component that is necessary when you're working with a technology that like frankly no one uses at all so the whole thing is just kind of you have to be comfortable with imagining yourself in another world or in a future or in a parallel universe where this is useful and trying to navigate between that more speculative fake world and fictional world and and the one we actually live in and trying to find out how you can what you want to take from that and and how you want to move forward and so that's something that i think the cms program prepared me well for um 
it's a job that still doesn't exist. <laughs> I guess. I don't know if you guys still have that tagline or not. Yeah, it's like, yeah being prepared for jobs that don't exist, which sometimes sounds great, and other times people are like, wait, what's that? It's like, well, it depends on which side of it you're yeah. looking at. Sometimes um, the tagline works. Really yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. And and so now, anyway, now I, I live in Somerville. I'm around. So, yeah. Boston's great. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Karen? Hi. So I have totally lost my voice. Can the folks in the back hear me? You can hear me? Oh, awesome. Okay. So how are you doing? Are you... Having a good time? This is amazing that you're all here. I remember 15 years ago being at an info session just like you are and hearing folks like us. So I'm so excited that you're all here and learning about uh, the CMSW now, right, program? So that's, um, that's fantastic. And I think it's also ironic that I lost my voice for today <laughs> because I really feel like I went to MIT to regain and to find my voice. <laughs> and, I, and I mean that like really sincerely. Um, uh, when I was, like before I came to MIT, I was working in Manhattan um, and I was, you know, I was kind of, it was the you know early 2000s and I was working at this kind of startup and, you know, quietly working and, and working on educational media and I felt like, wow, like the world is rapidly, noisily changing around me and I want to kind of stop and understand what is happening, right? I wanna understand the history, I wanna understand the culture, what is happening, these changes with media and the what, the why, the who, and, and to approach it from different perspectives, right? To, to really think about it from not only design, but from uh, history, from anthropology, from psychology, um, to apply all these different lenses. And, uh, and, I, and I really was drawn to MIT because, like you mentioned, I, I liked all kinds of media. I, you know, I like I, the web when I was coming here, it was just starting. <laughs> I know if you can't even imagine that, that um, there was the internet was just becoming. Um, I was thrilled by that and I had started, I had been working in that field um, and working on websites, but I also loved film and I also loved uh, television and I also loved games and I, I was you know here's a place where I can study and compare them and understand the differences and understand their affordances and uh, and that was thrilling but I think what really drew me here and I don't know if you're kind of getting a sense of this yet but the community the the MIT community is so strong and so um, so fulfilling really that as soon as I stepped foot on campus I felt like I belonged truly belonged and that was something I really hadn't felt before and I hope that you're starting to feel that too um, there is kind of like this special sauce in CMSW that I think that we um, maybe take for granted I don't know what they do maybe you know this but but they they pick people that are really kind of special and interesting and um, dynamic in this way that um, Just I marry him. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, well, the the, the two of them, right, right. But um, but anytime I meet an alum from this program, even if we never cross paths at MIT, we connect instantly. And and there are people that I never knew at MIT, but yet since like 
since graduating, I've I've run into at conferences. Oh, you were Seema stuff. Oh, you were Seema, and then we're just like instant friends, and it's it's kind of like they have this uh, this thing, this thing, and I, I I want you all to be part of that too. Um, but it is really kind of a. Uh, it's it's a it's it's a nice community and when I when I came here I felt like it was like my family. It really was. It was like being part of a family and I could feel that my voice was starting to kind of come back a little bit as I was here. Uh, and and I was able to kind of start to express and to create and to tell tell stories. And while I was here, I mean I did some, you know, I got to work with some amazing people and especially the people in the program, but also I worked with, uh, I, I was really fortunate, uh, Dr. Klopfer, Eric Klopfer, his group was working on some location-based games at the time, and I was kind of like their guinea pig, so they had been making games for scientific purposes, and I said, hey, can I use that and modify it for a history type of game. And I ended up creating a game that actually took place in Lexington, Massachusetts. So I got to go out there, which is a beautiful, so you should all go take a trip Lexington, Massachusetts. And it was, uh, a, again, a location-based game. But remember, this was before iPhones. Do you remember a time before iPhones? Anyone? No? no? <laughs> so we were using this kind of clunky Palm Pilot and had GPS kind of connected to it. But wherever the people stood in the actual physical Lexington, Massachusetts, different historic figures would pop on their screen and it would help tell the story of what happened at the Battle of Lexington in history. And, and depending on who the players were playing as, they got different kind of tidbits and different little mini stories of what happened at the battle. And then they had to come together as a, as a group and try to deliberate and debate all these different multiple perspectives on the Battle of Lexington. And you start to realize that you know history is you know is is uh, based on different interpretations. There's different you know it, um, different ways of of thinking about historic moments and also current moments. And that and that kind of that multiple perspectives, that listening to different perspectives and different views was I was bringing that into the work. And uh, I kind of want to just like stop there for a second because I want to just tell you one thing that I think was. Um, really profound for me because doing that work and working on that game and then you know I ended up loving work and I, I love games right but I ended up loving working on that game so much that since then so in the last 15 years I have been this kind of big voice in educational games right this is brand new field and I've been kind of able to kind of be that pioneer you know this was this game that I made was one of the first, maybe the first, history location-based game ever. I mean, think about that. I got to make the first one. So that was kind of life-changing for me. And when I first got here, I was basically silent. I would never speak in class. I was too afraid to say anything about what was in my heart, what was, you know, what I was thinking about, my opinions, my perspectives. I really had been kind of silenced for so long. And through being here, I was able to start letting my voice out. 
and to create and to be a person in the world. And that really, it really was a profound transformation for me, such that now I am leading a games program. I am, you know, I, I loved CMS so much that I wanted to create my own program somewhere else and be able to build the kind of community I had here and give that to others so that they could share their voices too. And so now I, you know, now I'm leading this games program. It's an undergraduate institution. It's 90 minutes north of Manhattan. It's a small liberal arts college. And it's a very teaching focused place, which I love because I get to teach others and, and teach them how to be who they are and find who they are. And it's only been two years that we've been doing this games program, but we're already you know, top 35 in the world as a games program. And I think a lot of it is because we approach it and I, you know, I designed it to kind of have the CMS flavor. You know, I have classes where we do things like storytelling across media, online culture, ethics and gaming, all of those kinds of ways of thinking about the social, cultural, historical aspects of media and of games. Since MIT, I've also, you know, before I even became a professor, um, I worked at places like Nickelodeon, at places like Scholastic, uh, ESI design, and I was able to quickly kind of rise through the ranks. I think because I found that voice here and I was able to share it, it was a unique mix of skills that I was able to bring to these companies that no one else had. And it was because of here. It was because of what I learned here. So I'm so glad you're here. And I hope that you consider coming here and finding your own voices. Hi. Um, okay, so I'm gonna start from the beginning and just like give you a chronological uh, timeline bio. Um, so I'm from Turkey. Uh, I grew up in Istanbul. Uh, my I did my undergrad in visual arts, um, and I was focusing on like while I was there, I was focusing on um, like mostly video um, and my. Like final project was a short uh, like fictional video and after I graduated I as every fine arts student I didn't know what to do so I decided to apply for masters and I wanted to um, uh, travel outside of Turkey so I applied to a lot of places in the US and then I came to New York and I started a program at um, an MFA program in computer arts at School of Visual Arts. And there I studied mostly uh, video production and video installation. I did a little artist, uh, like programming for artists, some motion graphics, a little bit of everything. But in the end, I, like one thing I focused on mostly was uh, video art and video installation. Um, uh, but something I always had in my mind, like in the back of my mind, was I always wanted to do uh, something in, in the documentary film um, field. Uh, I had taken this documentary course in undergrad and I thought it really, uh, it was really um, interesting for me because I never, I, I thought documentaries were only 
like visual essays, just like support, like visuals supporting an argument, and that's it. And what this uh, documentary uh, class I took in undergrad really had an impact on me. I realized it's it's a really artistic, creative forum, and you can do so much experimentation in nonfiction film. Um, stuff you can't do in like fiction form, I think. Um, so uh, after graduating from SVA, I uh, applied to this uh, documentary artist in residency program at a place called Union Docs. Um, Union Docs is a, it's, it's a, a small <coughs> cinema that shows documentary, uh, like really experimental, interesting uh, documentary programming they have, uh, and they also have this fellowship program. They invite artists and filmmakers, journalists from around the world for, I think, for a year. And um, at the time, they had this project uh, called Living Los Sures, which, mean, uh, which was about the neighborhood they're, they're located in, called Los Sures, by, um, or the South Side, uh, by Spanish-speaking um, residents. They call it Los Sures. Um, so they basically ask artists and residents to collaborate on a documentary project for like 12 months. And that was a really great opportunity for me because like I had never done a proper film, like proper film meaning, uh, like my video work was mostly experimental, more like video art, more conceptual, but I never uh, did any like linear narrative. So it was a really good opportunity because I, um, so you so in this program you have to form your own um, team. So you have to collaborate with other artists. And I was um, so a, a film a more very experienced filmmaker named Sebastian Diaz. He was also a fellow there, and we decided to collaborate on this project. Uh, and I learned so much from him. Uh, and we uh, co-directed a project called. Tonitas, which was about the last remaining uh, Puerto Rican social club in South Williamsburg. Um, so that was a great experience, and that film traveled uh, all over in the US and some in Europe and in Turkey. Um, it was premiered at MoMA Doc Fortnite, which was a very, which is a very prestigious uh, place to show uh, documentaries. Um, so that was a great experience, and at the same time, um, during this time, I was working uh, at a place called Maisel Cinema in Harlem, in New York. Does anyone know about Maisel's Brothers? Okay, so Maisel's Brothers are uh, this brothers, uh, brother documentary filmmakers. Uh, they all passed away now. Uh, they were the pioneers of direct cinema. Uh, in the 60s, like when, uh, when cameras became lighter, people went out like following uh, documentary characters and like created these films where uh, they were following um, um, basically, yeah, their characters. Anyway, so uh, one of the Maisel's brothers, they, uh, he founded this uh, place, this cinema in Harlem, and they're doing really interesting programming as well. And it's also a micro cinema. And I was doing an internship there, and I, uh, I also uh, worked as a curator at Maisel Cinema, uh, put together a film program named Fiction Non-Showing, uh, uh, Fiction Non-Fiction Hybrid Films. So the reason why I'm like, uh, explaining these experiences, because like, these, kind of, these uh, experiences that kind of seem uh, very separate, they're kind of, they lead me to uh, the CMS program. 
Um, so, uh, so I, as I was spending time in this micro cinema in Harlem and micro cinema uh, in Brooklyn, Union Docks and Maisel Cinema, I was really interested in the idea of uh, starting a micro cinema for uh, myself in Istanbul. And that was in 2000, uh, around 2012, 2013. In Istanbul, there was this like big protests um, as, as a kind of an extension to Arab Spring, Occupy Wall Street. Um, so in 2013, there was this Gezi protest, which was really interesting for me, like my... Uh, boyfriend at the time, my husband now, or <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't meet him. Did no. you meet him here? No. <laughs> he, was, he was in Turkey at the moment, and he was uh, participating in this. Maybe I should say this on tape. Anyways, uh, no one will listen. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, no one in Turkey. You're making it worse. <laughs> Turkish authorities won't listen. Anyway. The algorithm is listening. <laughs> Well, a lot of people I knew, they were participating in it, so that's, and I was here, I was in New York, I was watching it on my news feed. It was really scary. At the same time, it was the time when we were all hopeful for a better future, more democratic future, and like looking back, back at it now, it's like it all failed. But so like my plan was to go back to Turkey, catch this really awesome moment and start a micro cinema and like gather all these amazing artists, filmmakers, uh, around this community space where we would show films, uh, maybe like model it after like Maisel Cinema, Union Docs, like create a fellowship program, maybe create this place as a hub in the Middle East uh, region. Um, so I was really excited to do something like that. And um, so that was my uh, personal statement to uh, CMS. That's, that was my project proposal. I said, uh, yeah, I said what I said in in, the, in my application. I just um, so um, yeah, and actually the reason why I moved here because like my boyfriend moved to Boston, and I was trying to find a way to move up, move to Boston, looking at places, and I was googling documentary, Boston, Cambridge documentary, MIT documentary, Harvard documentary, BU. So like I that's how I came across uh, Open Documentary Lab at MIT. And um, so then I moved to Boston. I worked at uh, Harvard for a while uh, at their um, HarvardX uh, online education uh, program. And then I decided to apply. My visa was expiring, so I applied to the master's program here. And I knew it was very competitive, uh, so I was trying to keep my hopes down. But uh, yeah, I was like super thrilled to uh, get uh, accepted. And as I said, I was like, my applications uh, said, uh, included those like ideas, project proposal about the micro cinema. I wanted to um, kind of do some theoretical research and design a micro cinema for Istanbul. But my backup idea was to uh, do a project on, uh, a, on Turkey's greatest Turkish singer, uh, and Turkey's uh, legendary queer icon, uh, this uh, guy named Zeki Muran. And then, so I got into the program and like things weren't going well in Turkey and I thought probably I'm gonna postpone that micro cinema idea. Uh, and the other uh, project 
seemed a lot more fun. So I decided to um, work on uh, Zekimran for two years, basically. So my uh, CMS experience was um, pretty great as well, because I think at CMS anyone can do whatever they want, basically, and like <laughs> you can uh, you get most get the most out of this experience if you just like shape it according to like what you want to do with your life, what you want to do after you uh, graduate. So um, uh, I was so I was a part of Open Documentary Lab um, uh, as a research assistant, uh, but I was also uh, I was working for Professor Vivek Bold, who has a transmedia documentary project called Bengali Harlem. And I was working as an editor uh, on his project. And uh, for my own thesis, I was, so I did a, I wrote a regular thesis paper on um, this pop star, Zeki Moran, just analyzing him as a transmedia character um, who um, just like looking at, at different, um, types of artistic production he created in different media and like analyzing it. But at the same time, I also started a feature length documentary project while I was here and also a, a interactive media component uh, to just like a, a, a accompanying the feature project. Um, so very briefly, I don't know if I'm running out of time, but I'm out of time. okay. <laughs> So the, the project was basically like in between two semesters, like I got a grant from CAMET, which you should all apply, Council for the, for the Arts at MIT. I got a grant from them, uh, which allowed me to travel to Turkey. So uh, in between two semesters, I did some like research filming about this uh, project. And I came up with the idea of like, like when I was, uh, but that like, three months I spent in Turkey, like when I mentioned people that I was working on a Zekimran project, every single person had a story to tell. So I, uh, that gave me the idea to uh, create a hotline. Um, so I started, I started a hotline named Zekimran Hotline, which would collect uh, people's stories about the pop star. And, and that actually, that idea was born out of Open Doc Lab as well because I used a uh, tool called Bojo, which was created by Center for Civic Media here. And uh, Sasha Kostansachak, who's a professor here, and uh, she's a part of uh, Open Doc Lab and Center for Civic Media, she, uh, she helped me uh, set up this hotline which allows you uh, allows people to basically call a phone number, leave a message, and all messages upload to a, a web website. So uh, this project took off really quickly. I received hundreds and hundreds of messages, and then I came back to my second semester with those messages and some filming I did uh, during the summer. And I was I was thinking about how to use that like this uh, a lot of data. And Open Doc Lab was really helpful in terms of um, thinking about uh, ways to visualize or create an interactive experience with these with this data. And and at the lab at Open Doc Lab, I met with a media artist named Jeff Soik, who you might know from like he he's one of the pioneers who like created really important uh, interactive projects like Hollow. Uh, you might know. Um, 
a really great example of an interactive documentary. So Jeff and I, we collaborated on the Zekiran Helpline project and turned it, turned it into an interactive uh, web experience. And yeah, so I'm gonna cut it short. <laughs> so I'm, I'm still working on the feature film right now and the film is also using like these messages coming from the hotline so it's like two projects are informing each other so I guess that's a transmedia project um, so yeah I guess that was my journey great thank you all sharing and what I appreciate how you know we look back on our lives we, we sometimes come up with a linear story but then as we're telling it we're like maybe that wasn't quite as linear as I thought so I appreciate your sharing when you knew exactly kind of what you're doing and when you weren't sure what you were doing and then oh it all worked out so I think those kinds of narratives are, are helpful for us as we negotiate a graduate program that we, we are currently in, or as we ponder, you know, applying to graduate school, I think those are all really useful narratives. We also got some practical stuff like look up the sandbox and apply for money from them, or Cambit, Council Parents at MIT, or Maisel Brothers movies. You really should watch all of those movies. They're really important. <laughs> so, and they're very good. Um, so thank you for all of that. Um, can we uh, open up? I, I just want to emphasize that sort of half of our room are people who are already in the program, the other half are people who are pondering the program. So we have a lot of different interests and perspectives. Uh, some people may be more thinking like, I'm about to, when I graduate soon, what do I do next? How do I use my thesis? Other people are sort of more at the beginning of their uh, journey, if you will. So I think we could take some questions or comments. Of, can, can, I, can I ask a favor? If when you ask a question, can you introduce yourself? Yes, that's a great idea. I'd say, you know, what what you're doing right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Whether you're a potential applicant or a current student. Hi, everyone. I am Samira. I'm an undergrad, third year, doing computer science and comparative media studies with a joint program. Um, and I was curious about what kind of internship opportunities are available outside of the technical field, because that, I basically was a CS major up until this semester. So I'm still new to this space. Um, and I was curious as to maybe what kind of opportunities are out there in the media industry, especially with film. And I'll add that that, she, that Samira is working with Mr. Parks in particular on this question. Sort of came to the CMS side, I think. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Well, as I... Uh, are you are you looking to intern like in production like film production or mm -hmm. hmm. yeah well I've never interned in a film production setting but as I said like I worked in these for instance like these two uh, community centers slash cinemas which was really uh, interesting in terms of meeting a lot of independent artists and networking but um, like in those places there, there, there's a lot of uh, internship opportunities because these are mostly like nonprofits run on like low budgets they rely on a lot of like internship work which is a good thing and a bad thing um, but yeah it's not directly a production 
I think, like, I also think I would say try not to do a film internship, <laughs> like, just specifically where you're working on other people's films, because it, unless you want to learn, like, technically how to shoot films and stuff, I think that might be a good reason to do yeah. it, but I don't think they pay very well, and I think that you can also learn a lot of that stuff on independent projects where you're collaborating, either with a more experienced collaborator, where you're actually going to be credited as, like, a co-author or something like that, mm -hmm. and try to try to frame those projects in that way. As far as, like, getting your more exposure to like industry not just to production i know that like buzzfeed for example in la has like in has these like little fellowship micro fellowships that are about a month or two months that are kind of like opportunities to try making a you know try to just create a project shoot it for a couple times see how it does they also they almost use them as like long term interviews that you get paid for kind of and i would think that something like that where you're not just getting an internship experience but you're also getting something that you can call a fellowship and that kind of like gives you a little bit more control over what you're doing while you're in a moment where, flex where you have flexibility is to kind of try to capitalize on that where you can. Um, but yeah, there's lots of internships. Yeah, the question a, is how yeah. do they pay? Yeah. Um, and also, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm coming from an independent uh, film world, so I don't really know about like big like industry film production internships. But if you're interested in applying to like independent films, like if you're interested in working in independent films, I think I would recommend just like writing to people whose work you really like. And yeah. I mean, I don't know if you have, do you have an internship program here? Because at my college, for instance, we have a film program and we have internship coordinators whose job it is to match students um, you know, between the film, you know, whether it's film or games or um, video production to in different internships. So we have a lot of students who, for example, will get credit. We're not, we're not that far from New York City, so they might go to the city uh, twice a week and work for like CBS or NBC or Nickelodeon or, um, there, you know, in various internships get credit or I have other students who will work for a design company or a games company and will get paid. They're not allowed to have you work for no money. There are actually there are actual laws against that. Um, that you know. That said, some of my students who do film will do kind of like pickup work. In other words, they'll be kind of on an email listserv. Well, where someone will say, "Well, we're shooting on Saturday and we need some extra hands, and we'll pay you like a day rate." for that day and they'll go and do that work um, just to get that kind of like, you know, work on their resume. So there's all different kind of configurations. It sort of depends on what you do. I don't know, do they have at MIT an internship coordinator? I would well, assume I, they do, but I don't know. I would point you for as an undergraduate to Rebecca Shepherdson, who you probably, you know her? Yeah. yeah, yeah, who could point you in the right direction towards um, sometimes laws don't stop people. That's true. Uh, yeah, so, so, uh, so it, it can happen. It's original advice of just don't do. <laughs> it's it's it was, so so it is important to vet people as well because yes. like you know yeah. um, especially if it's a new space because sometimes people argue that you know you know we're we're a film company but really they're doing something else you yeah, know so yeah, it's it's fine. sometimes the, the I, coordinator is like our internship coordinator will vet places that the students don't get exploited. I mean that's part of what. Mm -hmm you know, their job is to do that. Yeah. 
Okay. Uh, so I don't think you have this problem probably that I did uh, when I, but um, I, I didn't do anything like that. I don't think, I, I, didn't, I didn't know anybody would help me at the time. Maybe they weren't at the time. I mean, this is 2003 when I did mine. Uh, my, the internship I got was um, uh, like totally weird and just had to do with a personal connection. Um, I mean, it wasn't like somebody I really already knew, but it was like somebody who I had met in, at some conference or something. Um, and I ended up going down to UT in Austin and um, uh, to, to work on something that I don't even remember what it was. It was some like weird ephemeral digital something. And, uh, and um, but it, it um, uh, again, like I, I, it seems like you are functioning in a space now where like probably what you want to do is a little bit more defined. But if you are somebody who's working in a space that's relatively new, I mean, you, you do have the additional issue of, of there might not be really any systems in place or people might not understand what you do. It's the whole like, you know, jobs that don't exist yet kind of a thing. So like maybe yours does, but you might very well be somebody for, for whom it doesn't. Uh, and that's when you really have to kind of make your own way. Uh, and that's definitely what I had to do. Because uh, today there are games programs. And, and one of the reasons why, um, you know, uh, one of the ways that stuff got created is because people like me went through at a time where there wasn't anything like that. And now I'm part of the people who are like helping shape those things. Mm -hmm. But I, it was very much, it's still kind of the Wild West, but it's like the late Wild West now. Like when I was there, it was like not, yeah. basically nothing at all. We're trying to do it. We're pioneers. Well, and I think that that's like resonates with what Beza said, which is like if you're just really like someone's work and you email them, like yeah. people are pretty yeah. receptive. They feel like they've been paid attention to. And they want to. They want to work with someone who cares that, about. That's kind of what what happened to me. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, I always tell my students the best way to get a job or an internship is to make personal connections, to get out there, to go to meetups, to go to you know when I was um, in the kind of that kind of not being a professor, I would go every week, I would do some kind of networking event where I would meet people. And you never know where, like five years down the line, that person gets you your next job. Like you you just don't know, it's just like dating, right? You never know where you're gonna meet that next person, right? Same kind of thing, I mean, you never know who's gonna help you get to your career, you know, your next career. And also, uh, you mentioned you're a CS, um, CMS uh, double major. And I'm assuming you don't have a lot of film production experience. So it's like uh, in Boston, New York, like people, like there's, there are tons of people who graduate from film production programs and like they get like production internship opportunities most of the time. I think that's why like when I graduated, I, I never got that kind of an internship or a job. So that's why I, uh, I wanted to do this artist in residence program where I can build my portfolio as a filmmaker. So I think I would recommend if you want to move into production, make films, like you sh I'd, I'd recommend like uh, producing stuff, uh, some stuff yourself yeah. first, uh, building some portfolio. Yeah. And like if your uh, projects get into festivals and stuff, then like, then maybe you can j jump to the next stage, like just skip the internship part and like apply to jobs yeah. because it's like good CMS advice. Never do other people's work or internships. Just hey, keep making up your job. own job as you go. That, that's another thing I want to second. Is that nothing speaks like work, like yeah. like having a portfolio or something that you've done, uh, and it can be small but very showy as well, right? You don't have to spend like years or even months working on something. Um, and also, I think in a space where, and again, it depends on the industry or on the the community, but in a world where stuff is changing so fast. Um, in a way, this isn't totally true, but in a way, the 
the kind of uh, um, credentials from just like having a degree or being at a place like aren't as valuable as the work itself sometimes. So, you know, I mean, I've been in situations where I've like, I got an MIT degree and they're like, who cares, you know, like, you know, and they're like, my, my brother's got one of those, you know, so, uh, and, um, you know, so, I mean, it does open doors, but you, you shouldn't like count on that, you know, and, and uh, one of the things about what's happened to like media and the like market for people who are trying to gain attention in the last 10 years, it's become so ridiculously oversaturated because now anybody can do anything and put it online, like, Make a video tonight. Put it on a Squarespace website tomorrow. Boom! It's like a hundred thousand people do that, and then the internet Have an is, ICO. is yeah. The internet is like choked with like talented people who want a job. So you really have to work hard to kind of create attention for yourself on on top of everything that you're getting from uh, MIT and just being in this space. So it's definitely it, it helps, but it's important not to take it for granted. And I think that's true that making stuff and doing stuff is like the best way to get yourself out there. But I do want to say that the MIT degree has definitely opened doors for me. I mean, especially being a woman and a small woman, um, people don't always like look at me and think, oh, she's super smart or so she's like super technically savvy. And what, having that MIT, it's like, oh, yeah, OK, she could do it. You know, so I it I don't maybe because you're like a white guy. Sorry, I don't mean to be like, but I mean people are just gonna like trust that you can do it. Whereas like I honestly it does help me because people I'm sorry, but people look at me and they're like, what does she know? You know, because I'm female. So you know, having that degree really did distinguish me, especially being a female who has like you know, oh, you went to MIT and they don't always get that it was a humanities program. They think, oh, you must be like awesome and like computers. And I am awesome. But like, you know, it, it just it really did help. So, uh, you know, it use use whatever you got. Hey, um, my name is Olga. Um, I'm from so, um, do you remember how you failed during your like, first year at CMS, and what did you find the most difficult? Did you say failed or felt? Felt, sorry. <laughs> I failed at some stuff, but I had lots of feelings too. Yeah. From our first year? Yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, again, I, I said this in my talk, I was super quiet. I, I mean, the professors had to talk to me and say, you know, you never say anything in class, right? And I, I, I was, I, honestly, I had no confidence. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of things that had silenced me in my, you know, throughout my life before that. But also, I just didn't feel like even though I had a lot going on in my head, I didn't feel confident in sharing it. And I think like slowly I had to kind of grow and gain that confidence. Now I have no problem, you know. <laughs> but back then I was, it was like, I was so in a shell of, of that and just breaking out of that was, was you know, it was, really was like a transformation. See, for me, first year, like inside my head, I was always like just walking around at MIT. I need to finish my reading. I need to finish my reading. <laughs> and <laughs> so that was really overwhelming. And like, uh, unlike other people, like I didn't come from a theoretical background who people who knew how to study, you don't have to read it line by line. I learned it. 
like I was trying to understand every single sentence and I like I, I was driving myself crazy um, I think um, one thing but one useful advice I wish I had was like you, you should look at the bigger picture always and not only like reading each article looking at bigger picture also like looking at the bigger picture in terms of what you want out of these two years um, like what do you, what do you want to get out of like these articles these classes maybe the research assistantships you get maybe that's more important for you because you're more of a creator type of person so you take it easy on classes I mean you should do them like study but maybe uh, you know you, you should look at the bigger picture zoom out and like decide what's important for you like maybe some classes are more relevant to what you're studying maybe your lab uh, gives you more opportunities um, yeah I, I think I mean for me I think it was really overwhelming even like sometimes like I I didn't understand what my classmates were saying because like people are used to speaking this academic uh, you know, language, and I'm like, oh, that sounds cool, but what, it, what is it? Like, I had to, like, Google, Google words, like, look up words, and I'm, but, I mean, yeah, you catch up uh, by the third, fourth semester, but, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's definitely a skill to speak like that, yeah. Um... Yeah, I'd recommend not stressing too much about anything and just like enjoy doing what you want. Enjoy yeah. it because honestly, I loved my time here and I wish I could just capture it and like keep it in my little pocket and take it out. <laughs> of room. No, because it really, the community, I, I was spoiled by MIT because I never, I still am like yearning for that again. So enjoy that feeling you get. I mean, I don't, that's how I felt when I was here. It was, it was, it was wonderful. I absolutely agree with being spoiled about about that, that feeling. Yeah, right? it was. It was like spoiling myself for two years of like intellectual and social fulfillment and creative fulfillment, I found. So I got I just like took everything. I was just like, ah. Now it's like, you know, I've got kids and I'm like they're young and that's what like, you know, and that that was like that was my two years to like focus on me and do like me, like get me at, like grow myself that was pretty awesome I, I remember going home for the holidays and feeling like I dreamed going to CMS like it like I woke up and it didn't hadn't happened because I went <laughs> I, I went back because that, that fall was so amazing right like, the, 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 the thing that you were saying about uh, being listened to like I didn't really feel like I fit in in my undergraduate which is why I and I love film but for, for whatever reason I didn't feel like I quite fit in and then I had these like individual instructors who let me do independent studies with them. So I never really found a community that I felt a part of as an undergraduate, but the instant I came yeah. here, I didn't feel like a student. Yeah. Like I felt like the teachers were treating me like colleagues, yeah. you know, and they were like really interested in what I had to say. Yeah. And that feeling was so powerful yeah. and so immediate. It just totally yeah. like knocked me out and it was just amazing. And then when I went home, I was like, oh my God, is CMS real? I, I, I kind of, I got to like okay. remember, I like looked at all, yeah. I was like, okay, I can go back, right? Yeah. You know, and, and yeah. it, but I definitely had that feeling the first I didn't want to leave. Like I was like, can't leave CMS. Like I didn't want to graduate. Like I was, it's funny. It's like, I'm glad to hear all this awesomeness. However, I wonder if we could also talk about 
uh, missteps or things that you might go over or challenges, not to just deliberately inject a note of negativity into the whole thing. But we could go in that direction as well, um, just in a way that might be productive and helpful. Oh, so it's my turn then. <laughs> Maybe I'm just projecting because um, I met my ex-husband in graduate school, and, <laughs> and um, no, I enjoyed uh, what, all my research and stuff in graduate school. I didn't feel a strong sense of community per se, or you know, there was very little free food. You know, it was a very different experience. <laughs> so so um, I'm not trying to bring everyone down, but I'm just thinking if we could. We'll, yeah. Okay. So I gained about. 15 pounds in grad school. <laughs> um, and that's partially because of the free food and also because it's pretty stressful. Yeah. Um, I think that with great freedom comes great like consternation. So for me, it was a lot of like, what am I going to do? Ah! And I think that was, you know, I was my own like judge and jury. So everything I did wasn't good enough. And I felt like I had trouble committing to certain projects mm -hmm. and certain ideas. Um, and then when I did, I felt like they weren't coming through well enough um, and combine that with, you know, being 24 and still like being able to party, you know. So it was a lot to keep, you know, hang up because it, it is an exciting community, lots of new people and you're trying to balance the fact that you're making friends and colleagues that you're going to have around for a long time with like trying to figure out if you even want to do a PhD after this and oh god why isn't this program just a PhD program would be so easy but it's not and I'm not going to go to academia and what is going to happen in my life blah blah so I think that there for me was this element of like too many decisions felt like they hinged on this semester or this week and the truth is that like none of them really did like everything happens over time opportunities present themselves but I think my first year was really marked by this sense of like impending like points of decision that never actually came to pass or needed to. But that was something that I felt a lot of pressure around at MIT. Or like maybe I should just quit everything and become a computer scientist and make money. <laughs> was a periodic concern. Yeah, I mean, um, I definitely understand that like self-pressure. When I was here, there is this kind of like crushing intensity, I'll be honest. Like I felt when I was here and this uh, need to constantly do something amazing and always be working. And the work ethic of everyone around you is so intense and then you kind of suck it in. And then I remember I was just constantly working. At, at some point, I was just always working to the point where when I graduated, I was working full time, like 60 hour weeks. And then decided to do like a part-time doctorate and get that. I got it done in like three years because like nothing was as crazy as MIT. So like it wasn't even that hard to do like a whole doctorate in three years part-time while also doing a full-time job. So it is, I mean, you really, it's like you become a workaholic a bit when you're here. And I remember feeling like my body was like a little bit, maybe a lot rebelling against me because of that. Hmm. Oh, and I definitely have a negative thing. Uh, so, uh, yeah, like, so my, uh, uh, I mean, it was like one of the best times of my life, but if I had to do it all over again, there are definitely things I would do differently. Um, so, I mean, uh, one of the big things about the, the program, I'll say, is like, uh, because it is so open and because they let you do anything you want, they also give you all the rope to hang yourself with, yeah. right? So, like, you really have to provide your own focus. Yeah. And, um, you know, you're, you know, they're not going to hold your hand and kind of, I mean, they will help you, right? Your, your, the faculty will help you, the, the thesis advisors will help you, 
but they won't do it for you. You know, they're, they're not going to really, um, you know, if you're kind of having a hard time focusing, right, it is ultimately up to you and uh, to really figure out what you're doing and what your plan is and really execute on it. Um, uh, and also, uh, you know, because uh, it's, um, yeah, well, I was uh, basically going to say the same thing again. So, uh, so yes, yeah, so that's one thing. Um, and um, also, uh, when I did my thesis, I, I'm frankly not very happy with the thesis I did. I mean, it got through, but you know, I waited till the last minute. Uh, I ended up finishing it over the summer, which I do not recommend. Mm -hmm. And um, I ended up, and the, the, the biggest thing that, that, that I actually, uh, it's strange that I almost wish I would have pushed back more from, from my instructors on it. Because I remember kind of being really worried that I was just trying to please my thesis advisor and just trying to please, and you know, you should care about that somewhat, but also, you should also, you know, know what you want to do and what you want to say and follow it and don't get just kind of pulled in every direction. So I remember kind of just at some point in my thesis just trying to satisfy my thesis advisor. Um, whereas I knew there was another student who was, I was just like, he was like, yeah, you know, I told him, you know, that I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I'm not, you know, and he was like, no, you have to. And I was like, no, I won't do that. And, uh, and, and so I was like, you can do that. You can just say no, you know, so, so, um, I, again, I don't quite advise being that confrontational about it, but the point is that you know you should um, you know have some level of uh, you know you should figure out how to balance you know those boundaries and um, you know have a plan for that and know what you want to do. I honestly think that I ended up for my thesis. There's a lot of academic writing I did after uh, CMS that that I really like. Like I feel like I honestly should have done more stuff about what I was really interested in, which was transmedia adaptation. Like that would have been for me, that was the stuff I was really passionate about, and I somehow talked myself into doing something that was more vague. And I, you know, I did it to a certain level of quality and graduated, and that was fine. But uh, when I'm telling people, like, they're like, "What is your work about? What do you talk about? Like, what what should I read to know you?" I, I don't send them to my CMS thesis, right? I send them to some of the work I did afterwards because that's when I was just like, "Well, this is what I really wanted to write." So you know, and it still worked out for me. But um, again, if I had to do it over again, um, I wouldn't do it that way. So. I think that's very helpful. I, I just read this great essay by uh, Margaret Atwood, and she was saying how she got out of college and she hadn't gone to grad school yet. She didn't really know what she was doing. She thought she might write true true romance fiction. <laughs> she might, you know, place to make money. You know, so she's tried it out, and she couldn't write good stuff because she didn't actually believe it, and no one will believe anything you write if you don't believe what you're writing. And it kind of speaks to this necessity of. Um, pushing back sometimes, and um, of course, I like to think that we're trying to give you very good advice, but sometimes um, you need to uh, find your, your own voice mm -hmm. and the ideas that you really believe in and what you really want to pursue instead of uh, kind of faking it, yeah, as it were. Your instructors are only human, too, mm -hmm. so it's like, you know, you, there's always that balance. So. And they're buried deep in their own work, you know, which is an asset, but also means I never had an experience with my thesis where both my advisors were like, we don't get this, we don't know what you're doing, we don't like this chapter, and then I was like, okay, I'll do another draft, and they're like, oh, this is great, we get it now, and it's just sometimes that barrier of communication, and you just have to be confident in your work and, and get there. Um, yeah. And sometimes pushback is just asking a lot of questions, like, mm -hmm. what exactly do you get about it? You know, pushing harder in the feedback. Yeah. So I don't want to hijack the dialogue too much, but I was thinking maybe we could complement some of the advice you guys are sharing. So there's several of us in the room who are currently first-year CMS students or 
just recently first year CMS students, that is second year CMS students. So I'd love to sort of get a sense of, uh, with your question when you asked about first year experiences, what are you actually hoping about more than What are you hoping to learn more about within the first year so we can shape our responses for you? Uh, no, actually, I, I got everything I um, wanted to find it. Um, and I'm, um, I like to answer about like getting the voice. So sometimes I feel like introvert being very genius. You're like, oh my god, everyone's genius. I'm introvert. And so I'm pretty, um, like I'm pretty sure that finding your voice um, is really important, like for everyone, like for introvert, for extrovert, like for everyone. So um, and my next probable question uh, would be uh, any advice uh, from our guest today, uh, knowing um, everything you know today. Like any advice to future students, what we should do and like what we should avoid, like to do like first year or even application or anything. I mean, I think Heather gave the best advice just now, which is like if you believe it, other people will believe it. I think that's kind of like I wrote some other applications, and I think my CMS one was unique in that it was something that like just came super easily to me and I was honestly very curious about working on that project and mm -hmm. investigating that idea and some others where I tried to tailor it more to the program or whatever just didn't pan out and I think that that's my instinct it's just there's no right category or answer I mean I just like say like be okay with you you know whoever you are uh, be okay with your missteps by the way you know because I think I also struggled with having a focus and having that, like we've been talking about voice a lot, especially my lost voice. But I, um, I'm so glad that I made those missteps here because now I do have that intense focus and I am able to set those boundaries. And it's because of learning and being and growing and you, you, you have to do it somewhere, right? You have to grow somewhere. Um, so be okay with do doing it now, you know? Make the mistakes now. Um, you know, expanding on or just learning more through the program. 
what I had to apply. And I was curious if when you walked into this program, you you had you learned something unexpectedly in terms of skills, networks, and people. Yes, I I hear that. But in terms of what you walked away with in terms of skills that you learned mm -hmm. that you didn't, you know, like a lot of the conversation today was on the gaming side, which for me is new in sense of something that to consider to you know doing myself, but other skills since it's so open and so interdisciplinary, I'm just curious. Mm -hmm. Well, in my case, um, well, I was coming from my background, uh, like I made a linear uh, documentary before and I worked in like more artistic projects, uh, but I, I had never done an interactive project before. So like that was uh, like working on Zekimran Hotline interactive project. I like, and working with a, a user experience design uh, meet, uh, expert, let's say, I that was the that was one of the skills I got out of my experience at CMS, like learning how to create interactive projects that doesn't necessarily tell a one linear story, but like thinking about all the details of user experience, which is like insane, as simple as you think about it. Still, like there are tons of details you have to think about, so it's a very different mindset than editing a film. Because like as a filmmaker, you never stop and think about like what the, I mean, of course you think about the experience of the audience, but not to the extent of user experience design. And the second skill, like new, completely new skill I got out of CMS was I took a world building class from Juno Diaz. And like, it was one of the best, most entertaining, the really amazing class. And I think that was the, biggest skill, I mean like the, the, the fresh skill, let's say, like a skill that I didn't have before. Like I learned how to write better and I learned about world building uh, and creating fictional stories. That was awesome, yeah. Yeah, I think that like it helps also to kind of divide it up into like, you know, like domain skills where it's talking about like how to design interactive projects as well as then technical skills which is more like you know how to shoot 360 video like how to put the cameras together or something like that because I think that at least in my experience of the program being um, between the media lab and our department there's like a lot of stuff going on and I think that like just like even the civic lunch is just seeing people like show their projects and get feedback can really give you a lot of insight into the whole process of creating an interactive project or a civic journalism project from the beginning to the end and kind of watching a lot of people come up with their projects and they also do this at the ODL lunches. Um, so a lot of these labs that kind of have these regular meetings, I think if it's a domain that you're interested in, just getting to be involved in that group can be a really good way to not like maybe not sit down and take them like learn how to actually technically do something, but it can at least show you what skills they know or what skills they needed to learn and kind of help you build up your base of your knowledge of that domain. Um, most of my like technical skill building was done outside of the program, but that wasn't necessarily outside of MIT. I worked a lot with like other more technical collaborators. I did projects that were outside of our program and you know stuff like that. And I would definitely recommend trying something new. I mean, we, we talked a lot about focusing on stuff <laughs> but I think you should just like 
uh, take one class, at least one class for fun too. That was world building class was that for me, yeah. for instance. And you didn't expect it to, you just thought, this is my fun class, and then it ended up having a huge impact that you hadn't anticipated. Uh, yeah, I mean, it definitely helped me in terms, like, it helped my work too. I mean, I've never made a fiction film, but it helped me uh, thinking about uh, like storyline, narrative arc. And I mean, I got to watch Game of Thrones for a class, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, uh, I want to second the whole Juno Diaz thing because um, I took that class too, and now my creative life is divided into before Juno and after Juno. <laughs> so it's pretty, it's, uh, it's pretty awesome. And um, How did so, I miss this class? Uh, it was, <laughs> Oh, uh, I took it uh, when I was working here. Okay, because I would have totally loved to take it. Yes, no, it was... It was <laughs> um, but, uh, so, uh, but yeah, so, I mean, that's an amazing class. But, um, but also for me, like, I want to echo the thing that for me it was, I mean, you can maybe pick up some hard skills, like, like uh, you know, learning how to do, you know, technical stuff, but for, that also is not something that really happened to me. For me, it was more, and it wasn't that I was introduced to media literacy when I was here. I mean, I would known about it before from my you know undergraduate but there was something about the kind of like uh, media literacy education the reinforcement of it and the diversity of it that was in CMS it was really useful so now I feel like half of the half of the stuff that's happening on the news and like uh, you know the whole fake news thing and like what the hell's going on with information and you know this uh, CMS was of course like uh, incalculably uh, important for for uh, having the skills to navigate uh, that kind of world, and 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 also there was one anecdote from, uh, and it was William uh, William Riccio who one time got angry at me in class and told me something that I never forgot, which was because every time uh, we would have these like we would read Marx or we would read these different people, and I would be like, why do we have to believe them? You know, why why is this? Are you telling us that this is like the right way to think? And finally, he was like, he was like, no, that's not what I'm saying, right? Like he was just like these are just compass points, right? You know, this person's east, this person's west, you know. <laughs> And it's not about tell, it's not about indoctrinating you. It's not about telling you this is how you ought to think. It's about giving you the orientation points to kind of like find out what you believe uh, or like who you're going to take from uh, in order to kind of like put your own belief systems together and give them coherence. And I mean, maybe some people don't have this problem, which is great, but I did, and that was that was like a really like precise moment in my life to me in my education that I always uh, always remember. Well, not many people reflect fondly on their professors who are angry at them. So, it, was, it was great. Thank you. I recommend it. So. Um, I, I know we can talk more, but um, we run flat out of time. So I want to encourage everyone to hang out and, and like I said, have some food and, and talk more formally with our guests. Thank you again.